Today's scripture is from Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in in them. Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you all. Thank you, uh, Adam, Nick, and uh, the elders here for allowing me to come and open up God's word with you. Um, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we come to you now uh, with gratefulness in our hearts that you are not a God who has stayed silent. Um, you're a God who speaks to us uh, through your word. Lord, you speak to us through your uh, broken ministers. And so now, Lord, we pray that you would uh, be with us. Enliven your word to our hearts. Lord, uh, wake us up that we can pay attention. Lord, open our ears that we might hear your word. Holy Spirit, till the ground of our hearts that uh, we might uh, grow as the seed is scattered, then it might fall on fertile soil and grow in us, producing in us a Christ-likeness. Lord, this isn't what we can do. It's what you need to do in us so that we can be more like Jesus. So, Father, do that through the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. Um, I, when growing up, I wasn't a very good driver. Uh, in fact, I was a terrible driver. For those of you preparing to get your driver's license, please don't drive like me. Um, before I was 18, this is always kind of embarrassing to say this, but before I was 18, uh, I had 10 tickets. Um, I had two accidents. Um, I was 17 years old. I was commuting to school, um, commuting to work. I was a brutal driver, always drove way too fast, um, and I can remember uh, one day I got, I got a speeding ticket. Uh, I was going, I think, like 85 and a 55. Um, and then I came home and I was so mad that I had gotten a speeding ticket. Um, and I go in the mail and I open up my mail, because there's a, a piece of mail for me, and it was another ticket for running a red light. Um, that's how great of a driver I was. Um, and I remember the day that I had to go into court, because when you have that many tickets, kids, you get to go sit with a judge. Um, and my parents were with me, 
And I knew it was the day, like, they were going to drop the hammer. The judge, the judge was going to say, you're done. Um, I knew I was going to lose my license, no fun, no work. My life was going to be over, essentially. Um, you know how you think when you're a teenager. Um, life's over. And I remember sitting in front of the judge, and the judge just looking at, at my uh, driving record and just saying, like, Joel, like, there's no reason for you to have a license. Like, you're dangerous on the road. Uh, my parents at that point uh, said, Judge, can we speak to you? Uh, and the judge said yes. We were sitting in uh, this uh, judge's office. She said yes. And I went out and sat in the lobby and waited. Um, and I was sweating. I mean, sweating those nervous sweats, you know? Um, like, crazy sweaty. Um, and after about 20 minutes, I came back in, and the judge said to me, uh, Joel, you have phenomenal parents. Um, they have guaranteed me that you will never get a ticket again. <laughs> They've guaranteed that. And if you get another ticket, you're losing your license. Like, we're not going to give you a license. You will not be able to drive anymore. And, you know, there was a part of me that was just so, like, grateful, right? Because someone had come in from the outside to speak a different word to the judge. And yet inside my heart, I was like, mm, I can do this. I can, I can, I can not get another ticket. Now, thankfully, by God's grace, even though I've deserved probably 10,000 tickets, um, I haven't gotten another one. But you see, this silly story illustrates the reality. Um, the reality that we hear about in Ephesians 2. When we stand before the judge... And the judge looks at our record. Our record says dead. Deserving of wrath. Deserving justly. Deserving punishment. And yet, um, there's a part of us that's like, I can do this, right? And this is so much our culture. My wife and I just watched a great movie last night called Free Solo. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's not Solo, the Han Solo movie, but it's Free Solo about a rock climber who climbed El Cap without a rope. Um, 3,000 feet by himself, a man and a piece of granite. You see, we think that's the way that we can conquer life. We think, man, you just, you just give me enough chalk and the right shoes, and dude, I can take this. Like, I can climb this mountain, right? And other religions, they're not much better than, than kind of the general uh, you know, way that we think about life. Other religions come along, and they say, not only can you do it, you must do it. You must work yourself up. So that you can be, in the ultimate scale of things, you can weigh more to the good side than the bad side. And then you'll ascend this sort of, like, ladder of being. But biblical Christianity comes in and it says something completely different. 
Biblical Christianity comes in and it doesn't say try harder or do more. It says there is someone else who did it perfectly for you so that you can now stand before the judge completely righteous through faith. Biblical Christianity comes in and says, you may be a total train wreck. Your heart may be a dumpster fire day after day after day. And yet when God sees you, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ in your place. You see, that's biblical Christianity. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at this glorious gospel that changes, fundamentally changes everything about us. So, really easy. If you're a note taker, I have one giant point, and then we're going to break that out into smaller points. But if you're a note taker, get your pen ready, because here we go. Here's the main point. Because Jesus has raised you from the dead. Because Jesus has raised you from the dead, you can live a new life. Really simple, right? Because Jesus has raised you from the dead, you can live a new life. And we're going to look at this in four ways. First way is dead man walking. Second way is but God. Two words at the heart of the gospel. Number three, we're made alive with Christ. And then number four, living the new life. So four ways we're going to do it. Hold on to your hats and glasses. Here we go. First point, dead man walking. Uh, this we see in uh, verses 1 through 3. Uh, the Apostle Paul refers to us in these real stark terms. You were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you've once walked. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul's description of you isn't particularly good, right? He says, you were dead. Not sick. Not on death's doorstep. Not basically good, but, you know, just needs to be taught some stuff. No, his description of you and I before Christ is dead. Complete and utterly dead. Does he mean physically? Well, no, right? We're still breathing. We still walk around. Um, and so what does he mean? How can we kind of uh, think about this? Kids, I don't know about you, but um, a lot of times I'm into, uh, like, I, I love to watch zombie movies. Um, I don't know how many of you kids know what a zombie is, but they're usually gray or green. And they walk around really slow. Um, they're living bodies... With spirits, the thing that animates them, being dead. You see, this is sort of what the Apostle Paul is saying about us. He says, yeah, we continue to live on in our bodies, but spiritually we're dead. We're, we're unable to do things that bring us life. We're dead. 
But you see, the problem is we're worse than zombies, right? Zombies are kind of like they just eat people and there's not a lot of consequence. Um, For us, every time we sin in thought, word, or deed, we're piling up wrath. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. There are many different views about our fallenness, right? The world just says, hey, there's good in everyone. You just have to bring it out. So work at trying to be better, better people. Then there are those who believe we just need to be taught the right things and then we'll go ahead and obey. Um, Then there are those who say we're just merely spiritually sick and all we got to do is just reach out for God. And God will come swooping in. No, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says something completely different. He says, you're dead. Why? Because before Christ, you followed the prince of the power of the air. You followed the power of darkness. Who is that? Who is the one who tells you to give in to gratify your flesh? Those aren't Christ's words. Um, those, are, those are spoken from somebody completely different. Those are the words of the devil. You see, before Christ, we aren't following after God. What we're doing is we're following after the devil. And now you may be sitting here today and you may be uh, here and not a Christian and say, like, Joel, I'm not a Satan worshiper. Like, I don't, I don't have a pentagram in my basement that I go down to and pray to Satan every day. Well, friend, the reality is, is your life, your actions show in some ways, in part, who your master is. And the Apostle Paul says something that's really, really interesting here. He says, by nature, we're children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. He says, um, let me get there in my, my notes. He says, we were giving ourselves up. We are once living in the, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. You see, the world and the flesh and the devil all vie for control. And for those who are here who aren't in Christ, this is what controls you. You give in to your body. Now, like, really simple illustration, right? Um, I love chocolate, dark chocolate. So I go, I go to Trader Joe's and I buy one of those one-pound bars of dark chocolate. Can I get an amen? Those things are good. (laughs) And I break off a piece and I eat it. Right? And I know that that's enough to actually satisfy my sweet tooth. But what do I have to do? To break off another one and eat it. And break off another one and eat it. And eat it and eat it and eat it until finally I've given in to my gluttony. There's a reason why Thin Mints only come in a giant sleeve. It's because you can't eat one. You eat the whole darn thing. We follow after the desires of our flesh. 
And in doing that, we show who our master is. So the question is, what can a dead man do? What can a dead man do? Nothing, right? There's nothing a dead person can do to make themselves alive. But we need what you need if you're here and you're not a believer in Christ. What you need is a but God moment. Second point. But God, two words at the heart of the gospel. Whenever you hear these two words in scripture, your ears ought to perk up. Because God's going to do something. He's going to do something on behalf of his people. Typically, his people who don't deserve it. Uh, Genesis 7, 23 through 8, 1. Noah is delivered. Genesis 31, Jacob is fleeing Laban and then God intervenes. Genesis 15, Joseph and his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God. 1 Samuel 23, David is chased by Saul and God intervenes. Psalm 49, sons of Korah. Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Romans 5, we were sinners while we were sinners. We have this beautiful but God moment, but God shows his love for us. And then here, this is exactly what we need. We need a but God moment in our lives. We need God to intervene, to move, to change us. We who were dead in and of ourselves... We must have someone come in from outside of us. We need someone to crawl into the grave with us and then to raise us to new life. This new creation work has to be done by one who has power over sin and death. This new creation work has to come from someone who has conquered death through his own dying. Who's conquered sin through being raised again. And Jesus was that man. Jesus was that man who gives us our but God moment. He's the one who took death and the grave and faced all of God's wrath so that you and I would no longer be dead, but would be raised to new life. Praise him. And notice here the description of God. He's rich in mercy. You see, oftentimes I hear that people don't think God is just or fair because he punishes people for little sins. Um, Sometimes I hear that God isn't a kind God. You see, but what we don't want is just purely a just God. Um, We don't want a, a God who is only just. We want a God who is both just and rich in mercy. Because if he was only just, none of us would be here. 
We would all be deserving of his wrath. But this God, our God, is rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. He comes among us. And he does all that we must do. And then he takes all the punishment that we deserve. And then he raises us from the dead. You see, this rich mercy puts on display the second thing we notice about our God. It's that he is, he has great love. Great love with which he loves us. In the midst of our failure, in the midst of our problems, in the midst of all of the things, all of our shame and our guilt, it would only be a God who's great in love, who would send his son to die for people like you and me. This God is great in love. John 15, greater love has No man than this, than he who would lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. That's what Jesus says. This God is rich in grace. It overflows in kindness towards us. This is the God who we serve. This is the God who intervenes in our lives and gives us a but God moment. And when he does that, he makes us alive. Third point, made alive with Christ. This is the great reversal in verses 5 through 9. God's acting in ways we would never expect him to act. (laughs) Quite frankly, if I was God, um, like everybody would be wiped out by now. Um, But God acts in ways we just don't expect. He loves his dead enemies. He loves them. Think about this. Christ, who is the creator and sustainer of life, was raised from the dead. And so now, by faith in Christ, you are too. You're made alive through faith. You see, this, this is this huge contrast, right? We were dead. Now we're alive. We're alive to God. Remember what he said previously. We were dead. We walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. But now we live under a new master, a new commander. We live under the rule of King Jesus with his banner over our heads that says, It is finished. It is finished. He makes us alive together with Christ. And so just as Christ is alive today, so are you. So are you. That's good news. And he does this all purely of his grace. It's it's a gift. It's not a payment. And kids, you get this, right? You get the difference between a gift and a payment, right? A payment kind of looks like this. Okay, let's say, kids, I had a big lawn. I don't. I have a small lawn. But let's say I had a big lawn. And I said to you, um, I don't know if this is any of your names, but I'm going to use it anyways. John, Jill, come mow my lawn. And if you mow my lawn perfectly... I'm going to give you a million dollars. 
a million dollars. And then on top of that, I'll just pay you $50 an hour for you to mow my lawn. But it has to be perfect. All the blades have to go the right way of grass. They all have to be cut perfectly even. So you come out and you're out there with the lawnmower and you're pushing and you're shaking and you're like, ah, I can get this. And you're around and around and around. And you come in and you say, Joel, I'm done. Go check the lawn. And for all intents and purposes, right, you look at the lawn, it looks beautiful, right? But I get out there with my magnifying glass and my measuring stick and I start looking. And I'm checking every blade of grass. And then, whoop, this one's not perfect. No million dollars, no payment for you. Well, you've just been out there sweating, right? Working hard. So what would you do? You'd say, wait a second here. I just worked all this time. Give me my money. You're really, give me a pair of scissors. I'll go out there and cut the piece of grass. Right? You would say to me, I want my money. Give me what I deserve. You see, and so often that's how we look at God. We say, look at all of the good things I've done. I want, I want from you, God. If you were just, this wouldn't happen to me. But a gift is something completely different, isn't it? Kids, what if I was to come up to you today and I was to say, I got a million dollars in my pocket and I love you. Here's a million dollars. What would you do? Would you be happy? Would you be sad? Would you be like, oh, I'll keep the million dollars. I, I don't even know. Of course not. You'd be like, oh, whoa, hey, thanks. Right? Now, what if I came up to you and you were sitting there talking to your friend and you're like, Pastor Joel, he's totally overweight and his breath smells bad. And did you see that orange tie today? I mean, really? With a brown jacket? Oh, my gosh. And, and he's just, he's just... He's just mean. Like, I don't like him at all. And then your friend's behind you like, ah, right? Because I'm standing right there, right? And I tap you on the shoulder and I say, here's a million dollars. I love you. What would you say? You'd be blown away. You'd be blown away because you knew you wouldn't deserve it. You see, kids... That's exactly what Jesus does for you. Every time that you sin against him, it's like you're talking bad about him. And yet every day he meets you with grace more and more. You are, a, you are loved by him. And you know what Romans says, what the Apostle Paul says, there's nothing that can separate us from that love. You see, this grace that makes us alive is a gift. Now, last thing, kids. How are you going to talk about me after I give you a million dollars? What are you going to do? Are you going to punch me in the face? No, of course not. You're going to go to your friends and say, golly, i got to tell you about this guy. 
I was talking so much junk about him. And yet he told me he loves me. And he gave me something I didn't deserve. Last point. Living the new life. What's the place of good works? It should be obvious by now from this passage that good works don't save. Your good works aren't good enough. My good works aren't good enough. We can't work enough to make God love us. Um, When God looks at us, um, if we don't, if we aren't believers in Christ, when God looks at us and he looks at our bad works and our good works, our bad works are like Mount Everest. They're like El Cap. And our good works are like the little guy down at the bottom. It just never will weigh out. It'll never work. So what are the place of good works? The place of good works, living this new life, doing the good things that God has has set for us to do, that God has given for us to do, those are a response of gratitude. They're a response of gratitude for the amazing, incomprehensible, that means kids... You can't even understand it. Um, You can't get your mind around it. They're a response of gratitude for the incomprehensible love that God has shown us in his son, Jesus. You see, they're this sort of evidence, this way that we can know that God is at work inside of us. And so we do them because they're what God has given for us to do. They're what God has prepared for us to do. Um, Our catechism, not the New City, but the Westminster Confession, um, it it says, like, should our gifts, our our good works, or I'm sorry, our justification, our salvation be alone? No, like... Even though we're saved by grace alone, that grace never is alone. Why? Because the Holy Spirit resides in us, making us new. Making us into somebody who we, who's not the same as we were before. So, should we obey only when we feel gratitude in our hearts? Should we wait until we're like, oh, Jesus, thank you. Now I'm going to stop eating an entire bar of chocolate. No, of course not. Of course not. We were created for good works. But you see, the solution is not to either fall into despair because our good works aren't good enough and then give up, nor is it to wait until we feel like joy and thankfulness in our hearts to obey. But it's to pray that God would drive the gospel deeper into our hearts to such an extent that we would look at the things around us and we would say, God, help me. There's an old song. Uh, My kids have heard me sing this a million times. So has my wife. They're going to hear it again. It's an old song. Um, it goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. 
and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You see, that little simple song holds such a profound key. When we struggle, when we're tempted to crawl back into the grave and live as though we're dead, we look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who has paid it all, all to him we owe. And then we turn in love and good deeds towards our neighbors. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much um, that this is not a work that we do. It's a work that you do for us and in us. Lord, we hear what you tell us in Exodus 31, that we come on the Sabbath and we rest knowing that you are the God who sanctifies us. You are the God who makes us new. And so, God, we pray that now as we turn to your table, as we turn um, in this response of grace, um, this response of love for the grace that you've given us, God, build in our hearts a greater love for what you have done through Jesus. Amen.